Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chandler. Food and Faith podcast community. We are glad to be with you again. This week, we have a wonderful guest on our program, someone who we've been wanting to have on the show for quite a while. And we are glad to welcome Jen Blesch, who is the program director at Gideon's Garden in Western Massachusetts. And Jen and I first met at a Food and Faith gathering back then called um, Headwaters. And um, she was actually, you may recognize her voice. She was on the show as a round table guest. And um, we have wanted to have her on as individual interview ever since. So Jen is a native of Madison, Wisconsin. And while she was in college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, she became passionate about cooking and sustainable agriculture. For two years, she was the director of Slow Food UW, a student organization that was providing students across the campus access to local and organic foods. And then as she was working as the director, they actually opened up a weekly cafe, which became incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, she currently works for Grace Church, which is an Episcopal community in Southern Berkshires, and she is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Um, Jen is the director of Gideon's Garden, which is a ministry. Um, of Grace Church, and we're looking forward to especially hearing about your work there at Gideon's Garden. And we are kind of neighbors, like we live about an hour and a half from each other. We've seen each other in person pre-pandemic. Um, I've yet to be over to see Gideon's Garden, though it is on my list. Um, and I'm just so glad to have you on the show today, Jen. Yeah, thanks, Anna. So we'd like to start all of our interviews with a question. Um, what is your geography, uh, the land, the food, culture, spaces, all the things that have shaped you and uh, kind of influenced the work that you've done and, and your approach to the work that you've done? Yeah, I like to say that I was born and raised in South Central Wisconsin near Madison. However, I wasn't actually born there. I was born in St. Louis, but I was definitely raised in the Madison area. Uh, my grandparents on either side of my family were also raised in Wisconsin. So there's a strong German Wisconsin heritage running in my blood. <laughs> I didn't really gain much of a sense of place or I didn't have a strong feeling of place until I got to college. And there were two instances in my life that really impacted me and helped me establish an identity about where I'm from. The first is that I went on a what we called a quest trip. It was through a campus ministry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I had just finished my freshman year. And we went out to the Badlands in North Dakota where our group met up with this park ranger and he's also a, a cattle rancher. But he showed us around Theodore Roosevelt National Park. He taught us about the animals. And he's a man who had a really strong sense of this is who I am because this is the land that I live on. And that was really influential to me at the time. I didn't have that sense of identity in myself and it made me aware of how the land shapes who we are and how we live. So I went back home after that and I started bird watching. I started paying attention to the plants and to the ecosystem that I lived in. And I, I did a lot more exploring after that. And so my 
connection to Madison as a city and to South Central Wisconsin as a landscape grew tremendously as a result of that experience. Now I consider Western North Dakota to be a second spiritual home, but definitely my first spiritual home is, is in Wisconsin. The second thing that influenced me a lot was, as you mentioned in my bio, is I got very involved in a student organization called Slow Food UW. And we really advocated for local and organic foods in the Madison area. And what it did for me personally is it helps expose me to food and to the process of eating seasonally. Growing up, my family went to conventional grocery stores and, and we ate a lot of home cooked meals, which was wonderful, but there wasn't that emphasis around consciousness towards food and, and its impact in our lives. And so when I got to college, I learned how to eat locally and seasonally, and it became a really important part of my own diet and my own lifestyle. So I consider myself to be someone who's a locavore. I try to eat produce only, only produce that's in season. And, and in that process, I've really gotten accustomed to, okay, these are the things that grow at this time of year at this altitude or and at this latitude. Uh, and, and I feel very connected to the seasons and to the types of produce that the soils of South Central Wisconsin provide. And that's created a, a real powerful spiritual discipline for me, but also a groundedness in that particular place. Yeah. Since then, I went, I went to a seminary in Boston, and now I'm out here in the Berkshires of Massachusetts, which are about the same latitude as Madison. Uh, so the seasons are very similar, but the landscape is very different. <laughs> it's a lot hillier here, a lot more trees, and it's just stunningly beautiful. Uh, I've been here for about two years now and doing full-time farming uh, through the church that I work for, which has been an, an adventure unto itself. <laughs> so take us out into the Berkshires and, um, yeah, can you share a little bit more about the geography and how did Gideon's Garden come about? I know this has been an ongoing project which you came into, you know, once it was, well, once it was moving, but um, give our listeners a, a sense of that geography and, and that place. Yeah, so Gideon's Garden has been around for 12 years now. Uh, I, I only hear stories about its, its inception and its origin narrative is that there was a child in the Sunday school class that had at one point asked, why can't our church do more to feed the hungry in our community? And the good church people said, well, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, why not? Uh, one of the women who is a member of the church also happens to be the business manager at a, a local farm here called Taft Farms. And she, so she has this connection between the two organizations. So she pulled a few strings, I think, asked the farmer for a little bit of land so kids could grow food. And voila, Gideon's Garden began. I think when, when they first started, it was like three quarters of an acre or a quarter of an acre. It was very small. It was on this swampy patch of land. Uh, it was run by a, a few teens that just wanted to volunteer and to help out and feed their community. And over the years, Gideon's Garden has nurtured uh, adolescents and young adults 
as they've been growing up and finding themselves and learning some skills before they go off to their next stages of life, whether that be work or college. Uh, and then about two years ago, they they hired me. The garden had, had grown a lot. They moved to another plot of land. Um, they it's It was about two acres when I first stepped in and they decided that they needed more help beyond just the youth who could only give so much time. So now we're a, a garden that, I'm not exactly sure how large we are. I say about two acres. Uh, we grow about 35 different kinds of fruits and vegetables for our community. Uh, we give it all the way to food pantries in the area. So we this year we've donated about 7,500 pounds. What does what does food in, what is the face of food insecurity in your area? Like who are the who are the folks? I think there's um, one of the things that we are recognizing is that there's food insecurity can have a lot of different faces. So what is what does the face of food insecurity look like in your area? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely in, food insecurity in the Berkshires. It's kind of a surprising place to find it because if you were to just drive through the towns, especially in the southern half of the Berkshires, you would say oh my gosh, this is a wealthy tourist town. We have so many people that have second homes. Um, they're people from Connecticut and from New York City. There's celebrities that live here, that shop here, that vacation here. Um, there's politicians that vacation here. So it's a very upscale kind of community. And yet there is a lot of hidden in food insecurity. So the cost of living out here in the Berkshires is equivalent to a large city. Uh, the, the cheapest rents in town are well above $1,000 a month, which is just insane for like a one bedroom apartment in a rural area. Uh, Massachusetts does have decent wages for laborers, but even still it's it's not enough. If you're making $14 an hour, which is $2 above the minimum wage in the state, it's not enough to live on hardly. Um, so there are a lot of people that are kind of quietly struggling. We don't have lots of people in the streets that are, are asking for money, uh, but there's a lot of people who live up in the hills who are living with friends and relatives and, and are otherwise struggling to pay rent. So um, food insecurity is definitely a bigger issue here than it would look like on the surface. I know that a big part of the founding you were sharing is, is was involving youth, but also now that you work with a lot of different youth programs, um, how do people connect and how have you seen that involvement impact the individuals, but also um, how, are, how are those youth shaping, shaping this work in the community? Yeah, well, I know in the beginning, it was the youth who really inspired the garden and they were the ones that cared for the garden exclusively. In, since, the, since I've come around, I think the, the church has looked for ways to grow the program and, and to change the program as the times change and as the kids change, because the sad thing about the kids is that they grow up and they move on. You can't keep them around for 15 years. Um, one of the things that that we did this past year is we started an internship. Even in COVID, we, we kept it small and, and we kept it outdoors where we could be safe. Uh, but we did a 10 week internship program for five youth where they would come and we would do a mixture of 
education. We would do a mixture of work hours. We do some fun and games. And it was really designed to be a structured educational program, educational work program for these young people with the goal of offering them a, a stipend so that they can afford their lives. A lot of the kids that are, that are younger, that are under 16, want work because they have things that they want to be able to pay for, um, but aren't necessarily able to because their families can't afford to, to support all of their desires. So we really hoped that we could offer kids a little bit of money in, ex in exchange for them coming and experiencing the garden as a place of wonder and fascination. What we're really hoping for Gideon's Garden to do in the future is to provide kids with a space. And it's been this way in the past and we're continuing to push and see how it can go in the future, but we're hoping it to be a place where kids can encounter and experience nature really closely to where they can meet other people and build relationships and feel supported by their peers, but also by the adults in our community through the church and through the farm. Um, we want it to be a place where they can feel empowered to give to the community by growing food and offering it to the members of our community that are less fortunate. And then also I think for one of my personal goals is that the students experience the joy of growing their own food. Hopefully it inspires them to have gardens or to at least be empowered when they go to the grocery store to say, hey, I know what it's like to grow that. I know that, oh, that actually comes out of soil, which I think is something that a lot of kids just don't know or, or aren't really paying attention to. I certainly wasn't as, as a high schooler. So a garden is just a wonderful place for youth in, in all different aspects of their life to encounter wonder and connection and learning and growth. That's a really beautiful vision of, of the, the garden and, and what the garden can be. Um, I'm really interested in how the church, I mean, this is a pretty big undertaking for, for a church. And I, I'm imagining that there's probably a sense of, of um, maybe separation or competing values or, or things like that. How does the church engage with the work that's happening at Gideon's Garden? How are, how are those things working, working hand in hand? Yeah, so what's really beautiful about this particular model is that Grace Church runs this garden purely as a service to others. So they aren't trying to do this as a youth ministry in order to get kids to come to the church. In fact, four out of the five interns that we had this summer were of the Jewish faith. And so there was no uh, hope or no question as to whether or not they would become church members. Instead, Grace Church sees Gideon's Garden as just a way to freely offer God's love to young people through support of, of the adults in the community and through just the abundance that comes from creation. And, and Grace Church it asks for nothing in exchange. It's, it sounds almost self-sacrificial or altruistic, but it, it, in a way it is altruism, I think at its finest, where there's a sense of our community has a need, which is hunger, and our young people have a need in a rural environment, which is meaningful engagement and connection. And we as a church have the resources to offer that to our community. And I think their hope is merely that 
that the young people take something away from it, that they learn about creation. And, and, and hopefully too, that they, if, they, if they're not going to join the church, that they at least understand that the church is a force for good. In a world where there are so many people who are burned by the church or see the church as a, an agent of hatred, to be a beacon of hope and light in your community to the people who are viscerally around you, I think is just a really transformational approach to, to church ministry. And so I know that um, Grace has its, its own journey with how to be church and church buildings. And of course, all of us have learned about how to be church online and Zoom. And um, But have there been any outdoor opportunities um, what either in COVID or before where you've been able to to do that mixing of of garden and liturgy and of taking church and worship outside of outside of um traditional sanctuary spaces yeah definitely uh, we've only had one outdoor worship service this year since COVID started and that was at the very end of September just two weeks ago we had our, what we call Celebration Sunday, which is the day that we recognize and we celebrate Gideon's Garden as a ministry of Grace Church. And so the whole liturgy was creation themed. The sermon was about Gideon's Garden and about creation in general. And then the, the one student that I work closely with, uh, he and I gave a, a report, for lack of a better word, to the community about how our year went. And this is something that we do every year, um, hopefully multiple times. Actually, back back in the spring, we do something that's called planting day. So the church, and we did do that this, this year, even with COVID, the church comes to the garden uh, on the first Sunday in June, usually. And we go out and we take all of our sprouts that have been grown in greenhouses in the spring, and we go out and plant in the garden. So we did that this year. Uh, we had we had volunteers planting 500 tomato plants and uh, 250 lettuce plants. I mean, lots of congregants that on their hands and knees with gardening gloves, getting out, bringing their children and grandchildren to the garden. It's a very joyous occasion and a lot of fun to, to have the congregation together on the farm so that it's not completely separate, right? The, so it's not just the church over here and the garden over there, but there's these special days throughout the year where everyone comes together and celebrates the garden. This is a really kind of amazing vision of the church engaging with the community. And it feels like something that could be a model for other churches. Um, what other ways have you seen or been a part of uh, with the church engaging around food issues? And uh, I mean, what, what Grace is doing is a pretty intense uh, dedication to thinking about food insecurity in its area. Yeah, how else, how else have you seen this kind of model working in the church? Yeah, I would say I have never seen a model quite like Grace Church is doing. I haven't seen it where the, the church worship is separated out from the mission, which in this case is the youth garden. I've seen it much more uh, often where the worship and the focus on food is integrated in some form or fashion. So I did my master's thesis at Boston University on 
what can be dubbed farm and dinner churches. And you've had lots of pastors already on the show that have a, a farm or, or they operate with a dinner church, uh, John Creasy just being one of the more recent examples. Um, and, that, and that's what I'm more familiar with. That's the kind of churches that I visited when I did my master's thesis were churches that either had a worship service over a dinner table or physically at the farm, or if they didn't have worship services at the farm, then at least there were uh, open volunteer hours throughout the week and the church members were very directly responsible for getting the produce grown and, and harvested and delivered. So that's what I'm, I'm more familiar with. It seems like, um, the most popular is when when the church members are a core functioning part, integral part of the farm itself or, or the celebration of food at the table. Grace Church is just a, a very different ministry. And I think, honestly, they can go either way. I think they're all different uh, expressions of, of the food movement within Christian environments where people are, are thinking of what does it, how does it work for us? The church that I work for is largely um, older congregants, people that are 60 and above. And so having them go out into the garden on a regular basis just wouldn't be feasible. Instead for them, it's more of a joy to pass the gifts on to the young people uh, and for them to be empowered to grow the food. So for any church that might be considering, hey, like I'm hearing about these farm churches or dinner churches, and I'm thinking of doing things, something like that, it, it's good to know that there's many models out there. Uh, some churches that I visited, they, um, they were kind of a branch of a larger church. So they're like dinner worship was uh, uh, an additional worship service to the main service that happened on Sundays. Other churches, their only component, only worship service was the dinner worship. And maybe they had secondary services that were like breakfast church or something like that. Uh, there's, there's many different models and I'd hate to, for people who are interested in this kind of thing to think, oh, there's only one way to do this. So there's, you can have it as a, a, a section of your mission or you can have it as a core part of your church or you can have it as your singular identity. There's a lot of different ways to do it. I wonder both in your research and where you are now, um... How are you or how are you seeing others change their understanding of what church is in doing these, the, the mixing of church and dinner, church and farming, church and gardens? I think one of the major movements that's happening as these, let's just say food conscious churches, as they're, as they're popping up. I think people are excited about them because of how embodied they are. A lot of people see church, and, and depending on your tradition, I, I don't want to overgeneralize about all of Christianity, but in, in a lot of congregations, what's true is everyone's facing forward, whether they're facing a, a worship stage or they're facing an altar, uh, everyone's facing in one direction and there is a certain amount of reception that's happening you know the pastor's doing everything up front or the priest and and the congregants do participate but they're not necessarily intermingling with each other 
and and then they're boxed off from the greater context, which is the world that's happening or outside their four walls. And what's happening in these food-based ministries that I think is really cool is that people are facing towards each other. So whether you're sitting at a dinner table or you're working side by side or across from each other as you're weeding carrots, there's a real embodiment, there's a, a direct connection from parishioner to parishioner, but also that your hands, maybe your, your mouth, your whole body is engaged with the worship service in a way that it wouldn't necessarily uh, be in a traditional setup with chairs or pews. And I think for people of, of my generation, I'm a millennial, uh, that sort of physical engagement is really stimulating in a worship environment because we like to participate in things. We like to feel <laughs> like that we're important and that we're really directly involved. And a food-based ministry, whether at a table or out on a farm, engages your whole self. And I think that is really grasping people in this moment. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I wanted to go back for just a minute. Um, you talked about being in, uh, involved with slow food. Um, I, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know what slow food is, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about slow food and, and kind of how their work has, has kind of carried and influenced you through to where you are now, both in your work and kind of in your personal life. Yeah. I, well, I'm first very proud to say that I still keep up with slow food in, in emails and they are still going strong. It's got started, I think, in about 2007, 2008. And even in COVID, you know, it, things are muted, but they're still going. So it's very uh, rewarding to see an organization that I was very involved with uh, continue to flourish over time. I can't speak for exactly all the things that they do now. But I know that some of the core components of slow food grew a lot while I started. So uh, when I, when I uh, became a, a member, I guess, or when I started attending dinners, it was a small group of people, about 25 folks that would come together once a month to share a meal that was made with mostly organic and local ingredients. And they, were, they called them family dinner nights. That was when I was a freshman. By the time I was a senior, we were doing family dinner night every week of the year when school was in session. And we had on average 100 to 120 people at dinner uh, every Monday night. And we, our, our process was similar. We invited a guest chef to come in to share a cuisine that was important to them. And then we would use local ingredients to make their recipes and to share it with the community. So it was, and we charged only $5 for this meal, which meant that it was affordable and accessible to students. So we were accomplishing a lot of things all at once. We were supporting local farmers by buying the local food. We were uh, connecting people and their traditions to our community so that that kind of exchange was being shared. And we were trying to fight for food justice by creating a meal that was truly healthy and delicious in an affordable manner. So that was kind of our, that was our founding uh, event was family dinner night, but we also ended up opening a licensed cafe and we did um, just a lot of dinners and programming in our community 
around local foods and, and food justice. And it's, it's lasted with me my whole life. I honestly, <laughs> being a locavore is something that I've done for so long now that I can't imagine living any other way. I, when I moved here to the Berkshires, I moved here in February, which is like the worst time to try and find local foods. And I went to the big conventional grocery store near me because I didn't know anything else. And I looked around and I was like, what do I eat? There's no local beets here. Like, what do I do? <laughs> uh, it's, it's just become a part of who I am is this connection to food. And I, I couldn't imagine who I'd be or how I'd live without it. So it's a very, very important part of my life. You know, it's interesting thinking about that integration of um, the when you're moving to a new place, the different ways that we can find out about the people and the culture and the geography and the landscape and how food is, I mean, we're a little biased around here. We like to talk about food as being that thread that we, you know, pull. Um, but it's, it's so central and it's so central in the way that we understand ourselves, but also that we understand our our communities and our land. How do you see, or do you see the, um, the actual act of hands in the dirt, people um, working on producing food as being a part of their spiritual formation and their spiritual growth? That's a great question. And I've been doing it for such a short amount of time that I don't get that benefit yet of those stories that come back years later when someone says, oh, you remember when you worked with me uh, when I was 17 and I was being obnoxious? <laughs> and, like I learned so much during that time. I, I will say, however, uh, so I've been working with one student for two years. His name is Fisher. And he, when, when I first started working with him, he was very quiet and shy. He's like my right-hand man. Like he and I are a team at this garden. We do everything together. All of our decisions are made together. And over the course of time, I've seen him grow as, as a leader and in his own confidence. He doesn't come from a religious family and he himself wouldn't necessarily profess any religious beliefs. But this year in particular, I've seen how much he's really paying attention to the garden in a way that he wasn't before. I can tell that he he has these affectionate moments with the animals that we that we have. Um, he's he's listening in terms of wanting to know how to care for the environment. So when I say, "Hey, we're not going to use this particular pesticide because it'll hurt the bees," uh, I I've watched him take that information and apply it at a later time where he's concerned about the way that we're doing a particular technique and if it's going to be sustainable or not. And when I had the interns this summer, that was something that I really emphasized was, these are some of the techniques that we are and are not doing so that we can improve the quality of the soil so that we can bring pollinators to our garden. And if any part of our ecosystem is out of whack or gets hurt by what we do, that it impacts everything and it eventually comes back around and affects our ability to eat. And I think even if you don't frame it in um, spiritual terms, I at least understand that spiritually. I mean, that's an, a spiritual realization to me. And I hope it is for them. It's 
hard when I'm not trying to, I can't necessarily explain everything through Christian terms to these, to these young people, but I hope that that kind of knowledge impacts them in the place that it matters and that it'll carry with them as they become adults and, and go forward in life. Yeah. Thank you for that. I do, I do think that there is, there is something, there is, there are connections being made, you know, connections when you see the church is involved in this kind of work that whether you get to see the, the, the fruit of that, uh, I think those connections are being made. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing about teenagers is that they almost never tell you things directly. <laughs> They're not going to say, oh my gosh, I've grown so much in this time. The way you can tell that they've grown is, is through indirect cues. Either they're, you can tell they're paying attention to something they weren't before, um, or that they're just comfortable in sharing stories with you that they hadn't been a month ago. And suddenly you're like, oh, wow, they're giving me their unfiltered thoughts about this. This suggests that they're comfortable here. And, and that's how I can tell that it's impacting them. I never, I never really get that direct feedback uh, from them. And I'm sure a lot of teachers, high school teachers, can relate to that yeah. <laughs> sentiment. <laughs> well, it makes me think too that we don't necessarily see the impact on on the church community, but I would imagine that the fact that Grace has committed and continues to do this work with Gideon's Garden, even if the members of the congregation are not there on a daily basis, um, that it's changed the way the church is being church and it's changed the way that they they see themselves and see the work in the world and um it sounds like from your stories and that i would i would guess that it's it's broadened the idea of what is spiritual practice and and what does it mean to be faithful and and what what does mission mean um and that that has opened up the possibilities of of what that can be which is a a powerful maybe not quantifiable impact but a powerful impact as um, people in the community's idea of church change, but also people who are in church that our ideas of church can change and can, can, can grow and, um, and be strengthened in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned before, Grace Church is really good at assessing what they're capable of and coming up with creative ways to give their gifts to the community. So the church members themselves growing all this food may or may not be feasible, but they're able to give the gift of this garden to the young people and to the community. And what I see that the church members are receiving in return is hope. This garden, I know, gives these church members so much hope because they see what they're doing in the community as a force for good in so many ways. Not only are they feeding families who, especially in a COVID time, are needing extra support, but they're building a network in the community. When I go and do these deliveries and I talk to the members of the community and I talk to these organizations that are delivering, they experience that connection with the church of, oh, Grace Church is a place that, that does this great thing. And so we're building connection in a community. I mean, this year we, we did, um, collaborative events with a local Jewish synagogue and other churches. And so the, the, the garden provides an opportunity for um, 
for, for relationships across organizations. We have one volunteer at the garden who lives at a, a community for adults that struggle with mental health issues. And so he comes to the garden and experiences the garden as a spiritual place because he and I have theological conversations all the time. Um, but anyway, I, between the food and, and the kids and then the caring for the natural world and the connections that are being fostered within the community, there's, it's, it's just ripe for uh, some sort of spiritual engagement, some sort of spiritual healing and wholeness, whether people consciously recognize it or not. And that's a wonderful segue um, from the church uh, having hope from the garden to what gives you hope? Um, what gives you sort of a deep, um, I can get out of bed and tackle the world kind of hope? Yeah, I was prepared for this question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I haven't talked about them at all, and this is going to sound maybe cheesy in the beginning, but I think one of your other guests mentioned this. We have a flock of chickens, and those chickens give me so much hope. And it seems silly, but it those those birds, when I show up in the morning, they are not reluctant to express their excitement that I have come to give them food. <laughs> and they're so uh, forthright, like chickens can't be anything else besides what they are. And as all the, the other animals that we have at the farm, uh, it, it would give me so much hope to see bees on flowers this year when I would go out into the cucumber patch and be like, oh my gosh, there's so many bees and now I've got to work in them. <laughs> like I got to work in pulling, I'm literally pulling cucumbers just inches away from bees and more bees. And, and to be able to interact with all this wildlife, we had two skunks on the farm this, this summer, got caught in a live trap. That was a lot of fun to get rid of <laughs> out of a trap. No one was harmed in the process. Um, but to interact with wildlife that is just as it is, they, the, the wildlife and the animals express themselves exactly as God intended. And they don't, they don't do the things that humans do where we pretend to be someone we're not. They are just, they just exude exactly who they are and what they're supposed to be. And that it reminds me of the goodness of God's world when I see those chickens in the morning, just hopping, trying to get <laughs> food in the morning, it, I, I think to myself, yes, God is good because we may be destroying a lot of things and we're doing so, we're doing it very effectively, but it doesn't destroy the light that comes, that radiates out of all of creation. And it gives me hope that we can participate in it. When I interact with the animals, I feel like, yes, I'm interacting with God. So it really, um, there's lots of things that give me hope, but the, the chickens and all the animals at the farm are my daily reminder of that. That's wonderful. And Sam would be glad that we talked a little bit about livestock. I mean, you didn't talk about goats and pigs, but at least chickens, at least we got some livestock in on this conversation. Well, Jen, I'm so grateful to have this conversation. If um, our listeners want to find out more about Gideon's Garden, could you point them towards ways to connect? Yes, you can check out Gideon's Garden at gideonsgarden.org. 
You can also find out more about Grace Church at graceintheberkshires.org. Wonderful. Well, blessings on you as you come to this harvest season and um, as it starts to get chilly at night. We were down below freezing here last night. I don't know about Ooh. you over there, but um, I um, wish you wish you well. And thanks again for taking the time to be in a conversation with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.